0: If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Acts, and kind of the whole heart behind this is we've kind of asked the question, man, we started off our year with this phenomenal like, season of prayer and fasting, and the question becomes, how do we continue to move through this year in the fullness of what God has for us? And so we've kind of answered that question by saying, hey, we're going we're to move forward by remembering our identity, and the way we remember our identity is looking back at our roots, looking back at where we come from. And the book of Acts tells the story of the birth of Jesus's church, uh, the starting of what frames and shapes our identity. And if you will remember, we kind of established this, uh, this definition of who the church is, that the church is no less than a movement of God's kingdom that is fueled by his spirit and carried by his people as witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is what it means for us to be the church. And we've kind of looked at what marked the early church as we walked through the beginning of, of Acts. And last week, we got to this place in Acts chapter two where the Holy Spirit was poured out on those early followers of Jesus, 120 people and, and wild things start happening. You know, there's this sound like a rushing wind and, and you have these people, these very ordinary people that suddenly begin speaking about God in languages that they've never learned before and everyone's gathering around them. They're in the city of Jerusalem and all these people are gathering around there going, what in the world is going on right now? It'd be like if a bunch of people from Pegram, Tennessee went to New York City and started proclaiming to the United Nations and everybody heard it in their own language. A lot of you are going, where is Pegram, Tennessee? Exactly, like it's just so like, some of you are insulted right now and I'm sorry, but you know, it's like, this is what is happening. The, the, The people of Jerusalem, they go, aren't these all Galileans? These are commoners, country folk, farmers, fishermen. And yet we all hear them speaking in our own language and they're blown away. And so where our text picks up today, the apostle Peter stands up and he begins to address them, and he wants to clarify for them what's happening. And this speech, this sermon that Peter gives, it is is—it is this enormously huge moment, not just in the history of the church, but really in the history of the world. And we'll unpack that here in just a minute. But I want you to see the first thing that Peter does is he wants to help those who are there that are all bewildered and kind of shocked by what's happening. He wants to frame for them what's happening. And so all throughout his sermon, he's going to repeatedly refer back to the Hebrew scriptures. This was their sacred text. These were all Jewish people that were listening. And so Peter says, "Hey, don't be surprised by what you see." What you see, he says, "We're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning." That always kind of confounded me a little bit, you know. Like Peter's a preacher. He's like, "Ah, it's only nine. Now come back at nine tonight, and we'll all be raging drunk." You know, it's like what a weird thing to say. I don't know why he says that, but he says, hey, "We're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning." He says, no, this thing that's happening is that, is that thing that you've always read about. And he quotes this prophet by the name of Joel. He says, listen, this is what Joel said. He said, in the last days, the Lord's gonna pour out his spirit and there's gonna be prophecies and visions and dreams and, and all these things are gonna happen. And they would have been familiar with that prophecy of Joel. And what Peter is doing, he's basically saying, hey, this thing that you see happening is that thing that you've read about your entire life. <laughs> he's like, this is that this is what's coming to bear right in front of your eyes. And at the very tail end of that prophecy, he gives that that phrase that many of us have heard many times. He says, the very tail end of it says, hey, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you you can almost catch Peter kind of catching himself going, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. They can't call on the name of the Lord until they understand who the Lord is. And so from there, he begins to move into proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And what, what we're going to read, what we've just read, what Jessica read, and what we're going to look at, it is really the first ever Christian proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. The word Christian wasn't even around yet. But this was the first time on this side of the resurrection of Jesus that somebody has stood up and proclaimed publicly the good news about Jesus, what, what we call the gospel. In many ways, you know, maybe some of you have heard of the shot heard around the world. You know, this was what is used to refer to the shots that were fired in Concord, Massachusetts that, that kind of kicked off the American Revolution. And people, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson coined that phrase shot heard around the world because those shots would alter the course of American history and English history and really world history and Western history in so many ways. In a lot of ways, this sermon that Peter gives is like the sermon heard around the world because it would, it would shape and change the trajectory of history. On the tail end of it, we'll see 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus, and this beautiful little community is born that comes to be known as the church, and the world has never been the same since. But you know, as I read through this sermon of Peter, this proclamation of the gospel, something kind of stuck out to me. And it was that, you know, the gospel that he proclaims has kind of a different flavor to it than the gospel I heard growing up. It has a different flavor to it than I think the gospel that is most often proclaimed in Western cultural Christianity. You know, the gospel that is most often proclaimed uh, in our day sounds something like this. Hey, you're a sinner. Jesus died. And if you will believe in him, you get to go to heaven. That's kind of the, the basic gospel that is proclaimed in Western cultural Christianity. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you. And if you'll believe in him, then you get to go to heaven. Now, here's the thing. Hear me out. That is a true statement, right? That's a true statement. Like, we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Very biblical. There's a couple problems with that when we say that in its entirety is the gospel. One is, I don't know if you've ever tried to share that good news with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, hey, guess what, Uh, Jesus died for your sins. Like you say that to the average Western person, whether you're in Europe, America, Canada, Australia, it doesn't matter, you say it to the average Westerner and they go, what the heck is a sin? And, And why did some first century rabbi have to die for whatever my sin is? It's like a foreign language. The other problem with saying that is the entirety of the gospel is that Peter's gospel that he proclaims right here on the birthday of the church although it has hints of that gospel in it, it doesn't seem to be the entirety of what he focuses on. No, instead, Peter's sermon is not primarily centered around my lostness. Instead, first and foremost, his sermon is about Jesus's identity, who Jesus is. Because Peter understands, if I can help people understand the fullness of who Jesus is, then the rest of the gospel flows out of that. You know, one of my favorite memories from college Um, was uh, I worked at this coffee shop uh, called Midnight Oil. I went to college in this small uh, little town in Arkansas called Searcy, very small town, like 20,000 people. And I worked at this coffee shop called Midnight Oil. And I remember one day uh, when I was in grad school, I was there at the shop. I wasn't working, out. I wasn't on the clock. I was doing some homework, some grad school homework. And these three people walked in. And now, I worked at the coffee shop, so I knew all the regulars, it's a small town. So if somebody walked in, and they looked like someone that would frequent a coffee shop, and I didn't recognize them, I kind of knew they were from out of town. And so these three people walked in, and I kind of looked at them, and one of them came and sat right next to me. And so I was eager to get to know who he was, what his story was, so I start talking to him. It was, it was two guys and a girl that walked in, and one of the guys sat right here. And as I start talking with him, I learned—I've shared this story before, so many of you may know where this is going— but as I'm talking with him, I, I found out he's a musician. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm a musician. I play guitar. So we kind of start talking about music. I find out what kind of music they play and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just chatting it up with him, you know, like we're buds. And, uh, and then he gets a phone call and he's like, hey, I need to take this call. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. So I go back to working on my computer. And as he's talking on the phone, I start realizing he sounds like he's talking to like an agent or a, a tour manager or something. So I try not to be too nosy. You know, I kind of look like this over at his computer and I see at the top of the screen, it says Nickel Creek Tour Schedule. Now, some of you some of you know who Nickel Creek is, some of you don't. Okay, so let me just tell you, Nickel Creek is this phenomenal folk bluegrass band that was around, you know, and they're still around today, but they're comprised of Chris Thiele, who's like one of the world's most uh, predominant mandolin players. Now he hosts the NPR show Live From Here. Maybe you've heard of that. It used to be called Prairie Home Companion. And Chris Thiele was sitting at a table like 15 feet from me. Sean Watkins, the guitar player, sitting next to me that I've been chumming it up with. And his sister is sitting next to him on the other side on the couch. And suddenly I go, oh my goodness. Like I realize who they are. And I totally, and I know I'm in Nashville. And so you guys are gonna judge me like this for this. But I totally sort of like fanboy out. Like I, I got up and I... I went back into the kitchen and I called all the other employees. I'm like, guys, do you know who's in our coffee shop? And I start, Nickel Creek is here. We like played their music in the shop all the time. And they're like, oh my goodness. They start looking out the door going, there he is. Ah. You know, We're freaking out in the kitchen. And, uh, and then we pulled the most ridiculous move ever. We put their CD on and turned it on <laughs> in the coffee shop. I'm, I know, it's like so ridiculous. And then I walk out there and I sit down next to him, kind of like, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> And they look at each other, and they hear their music come on, and they smile. And they were totally cool about it. I know they were probably rolling their eyes inside, but here's what's cool. It ended up playing out really well. They came back that night, and they played like an impromptu show at our coffee shop. It was amazing. But here's the thing that I want you to hear from this story, is that isn't it true that our posture, our response to a person, for better or for worse, shifts when we learn about their true identity? When you learn somebody's true identity, there's something about your response to them that begins to shift. Maybe all of us have been there before, and you know what Peter is going to say in this sermon, he's going to say, listen, there is something that is happening here before your eyes, but you've got to understand the fullness of the identity of this man, Jesus, or you will completely miss it. You'll completely miss it. And so he says, All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's like, Now let me tell you about who this Lord is. Look in verse 22. He says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you, as you yourselves know. In other words, he's starting with what they already know. They've all heard of Jesus. This was 50 days after he was crucified. And so they're all, all, oh yeah, we've heard of this guy, Jesus. He says, listen, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so where Peter starts with, he starts with what they know about Jesus. You see, there is this narrative, this narrative about Jesus that had shaped their response to Jesus. The narrative that had shaped their response was this, was there's this, this Galilean, this Nazarene, Uh, Jesus, who had gone around and doing miracles and the religious leaders of the day had proclaimed, this man is not from God. They said it outright that this man casts out demons by demons. In the name of the devil, he is doing these things. And all of these accusations eventually led to them crucifying Jesus because the narrative they believed about Jesus shaped their response to Jesus and they had him crucified. Now, here's the reality about us today. We're 2,000 years on the other side of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and there are no shortage of narratives about who Jesus is. And these narratives are shaping the way that we as the church and the rest of the world respond to Jesus. And this morning, I want to name just four of these narratives that I see at work in our culture that are shaping me and shaping you and I'm guessing as I name these, some of you are going to go, oh, yeah, I, I've done that. That's okay. I just want you to listen and see if any of these narratives have begun to shape your response to Jesus. You know, the, the first narrative is this. I call it uh, the narrative of the wise sage Jesus. The narrative of the wise sage Jesus. You know, this narrative says, okay, yeah, we, we kind of have to accept that Jesus was real. Secular historians with no sort of religious belief or spiritual belief that we have to wrestle with the fact, okay, Jesus, this man from Nazareth, actually lived. He actually did something because the world kind of shifted because of his existence. And so, how do we make sense of it? And what this this view says is, okay, we can accept that Jesus really alive, but he was really just a good teacher. He was a wise sage that said some good things, a rabbi. Now, this narrative is hard at work in our culture. It has been for decades. Some of you, if you went to a secular university, you've probably heard of this referred to as the quest for the historical Jesus or the Jesus Seminar. And what the quest for the historical Jesus seeks to do is, hey, let's take what we can know about Jesus from the Bible, and let's just eliminate anything that we can automatically assume is false. And what they assume automatically is false is anything that is miraculous, any kind of sign or wonder, any kind of supernatural event, any place where Jesus claims any sort of divinity and they go, okay, likely that's not really true. We'll just kind of black that out and what we're left with are just the wise, sage teachings of Jesus, the historical Jesus. Now, this is one narrative that has shaped much of our culture and it has shaped many of us. Many of us still wrestle with the miracles of Jesus. We don't know what to do with them because it doesn't fit in our modern worldview. And it is shaping our response to much of what he longs to do in our midst and of what he longs to do in our city. So one narrative is the wise sage Jesus. Another narrative of Jesus is what I refer to as the lifeguard Jesus. A lifeguard Jesus looks like this. You know, you think about how a lifeguard functions you go to a public pool and the lifeguard sits on the lifeguard stand and basically stays out of the way until what, somebody's drowning, at which point they heroically jump in, they save you, they put you on the side of the pool, but then they go where? Immediately back to the lifeguard stand, kind of where they belong. The lifeguard, the only function they really serve, so the only time you really need the lifeguard is when someone is drowning, but the rest of the time they kind of stay out of our affairs. Think about the last time you we went to the public pool. You know, the lifeguard didn't come down and join in your game of Marco Polo. Like He just doesn't do that. Like the lifeguard stays out of the way. That's part of his job description. He's there just to kind of watch and keep an eye out for everything. And the only time he comes into play is when someone is drowning. And in reality, when you're at the public pool, have you ever noticed that if no one's drowning, a lot of times you just even forget that the lifeguard is there. He just kind of drifts into the background. And this is the view that many of us have been given, the narrative we've been given about Jesus. He's like the lifeguard that, you know, we need a savior and we're glad that he jumped in to save us, but now that he's pulled us out of the pool and pulled us back on the side, we kind of just want him to go back to his lifeguard stand where he belongs. We don't want him sitting down with us and hanging out with our friends at the pool party because that's not what we asked him to do. It feels kind of invasive and creepy when the lifeguard comes in and starts getting in on your business. This is another narrative. There's the wise sage, there's a the lifeguard. Another narrative of Jesus is what I'll refer to as the therapist Jesus. Therapist Jesus kind of goes like this, you know, we all have wounds, we all have hurts, we all have anxieties, we all have fears, and we live in a culture where going to therapy is just increasingly kind of the norm, right? And and I'm not saying this in any kind of judgment, like I am a therapist, I made a living as a therapist for quite a while. But see, therapist Jesus begins to function in our minds and our hearts, much like therapists do today, you know, he's, he's empathetic. He listens, he understands, he's there when we need a listening ear, but that's kind of the only time he's there. He's there when we make an appointment, when we go to his office, whether it's weekly or whether it's just as needed. Therapist Jesus is there to listen. He's there to offer suggestions on other ways that we could see ourselves. He's there to offer us suggestions on how we could maybe live our lives a little bit differently, but here's the thing, like any good therapist today, He needs to mind his boundaries of what he can and he can't say when it comes to guiding me. You see, therapists, the way therapists function today, it is not their place. I know because I've been trained as a therapist, we are told it is not our place to impose our values on you. That we are actually supposed to learn your values and figure out how to help you live in such a way that you can thrive within those values. And when we put Jesus as therapist Jesus, We expect him to mind the boundaries. Hey, I want you to take away some of the anxiety and the fear and the hurt and the woundedness, but Jesus, I kind of want you to mind your boundaries and don't go imposing your values on me. That's not what I came to you for. Jesus as therapist needs to respect and reflect my values, not me reflecting his values. So there's three narratives. There's one more I'll talk about. There's another narrative that many of us, I know because I've been in conversation with so many of you, this narrative is this idea of Jesus as traffic cop Jesus. You know, traffic cop Jesus loves to just hang out on the side of the road waiting, watching for that moment when he can watch you mess up and he can pull out, turn on the lights and bust you and write you a ticket. He finds great joy in bringing you suffering every time you mess up. This is the narrative that so many who grew up in church, they end up hearing about Jesus. He's, just, he's got power and he's got authority, and the way he wants to leverage that power and authority is to bust you and to get you in trouble. Now, here's the reality, is that all four of these narratives are at work in our culture and they're at work even within our church. Some of you are probably going, yeah, I kind of relate to that one and this one. And what happens is you get this kind of tangled mess of false narratives about who Jesus is that begins to impact the way that we respond to all that Jesus wants to do. If we walk under these false narratives, it begins to affect the way we function as a church. You look at the way it affected these first century Jews. They were given a false narrative about Jesus, and what did they do? They crucified him. They put him on a cross because they thought that's where he belonged. Now, here's the reality. None of you were there that day to drive the nails into Jesus' hand. But if we function under these false narratives of Jesus, what ends up happening is we may not, we may not consciously put him on the cross, but what we will so often do is unconsciously just put him on the shelf. We compartmentalize him. We need him when we need saving. We need him as a therapist. We need him to get him as a traffic cop. We want him to mind his own business. We put him on a shelf, we relegate him to a compartment of our life instead of giving him all of our lives. This is how false narratives shape us. They begin to shape our response that all that Jesus wants to do. You know, but I love what Peter does because he's not content with his brothers and sisters. In Israel, living with false narratives of Jesus. So he is is propelled to finish his sermon by proclaiming the bold truth. Look at what he says. He says, listen, you with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I think he would look at us, Western cultural Christians, he would say, listen, you are continually compartmentalizing, putting Jesus on the shelf for when you think you need him instead of at the center of your life. But look at verse 24, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter says, listen, I want you to know the full narrative. I want you to know the truth about who Jesus is, that though you crucified him, though you compartmentalized him, God is at work and he has brought him back to life. From this point on in the sermon, Peter is gonna continually reference back to the Hebrew scriptures, to their sacred writings. He's gonna say, hey, look at this psalm, hey, look at this psalm, and what he's doing. He's trying to show them, hey, the old texts that we believe in, they actually affirm this identity of Jesus. And I love this, because I've read this sermon so many times, and I'm, quite honestly, I've read some of the psalms that, that, that Peter quotes And I've been like, yeah, that seems kind of a stretch, Peter, that King David thought he was talking about Jesus there. I'm like, where did Peter come to this conclusion? And then I remembered Luke 24, verses 44 to 45. Jesus is sitting with his apostles after the resurrection. He says, hey, listen, it was necessary for me to suffer to fulfill all that was written about me in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets. And then Luke says, he opened their minds so they could understand what was written about him in the scriptures. Where did Peter get all of this? He got it from spending 40 days with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus connected these dots to make the scriptures come alive so that Peter could finally begin to understand the fullness of who Jesus is. And Peter stands up and boldly proclaims it, and he reads his conclusion in verse 36. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. Now, here, here's the crazy thing as we read this and what happens immediately after that is says the people are cut to the heart. Now, the unfortunate thing is that we live in a culture now where the words Lord and Messiah have almost been emptied of their power. They've just become religious jargon. In our culture, we don't understand the word Lord because we don't really function under lords anymore. We don't understand the word Messiah because it's not necessarily part of our our history, our culture, our background. But these people heard these words and they were cut to the heart. I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about what these words mean. What did Peter mean when he said that Jesus is Lord and Messiah? You know, the word Lord. First of all, what he was saying is, hey, listen, you need to understand that this Jesus is Lord. He is being equated with God himself. Remember what he said at the end of the, the prophecy in Joel. He says, all who call upon the name of who? All who call upon the name of who? The Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter says, listen, this Jesus, this Jesus is not just an empty Nazarene that died. He is the Lord. He's been exalted on level playing field with God himself, and he is the name by which you will be saved. He said, but he's not just Lord. This word Lord carried with it a sense of authority. that He has all authority. And then he says, but he is also Messiah. Messiah for the first century Jews would have been very clear as communicating, hey, he is the anointed one of God, the son of God, the holy one of God. This was a phrase that would have brought with it immense amounts of power. What, what, what Peter was saying is, hey, listen, Jesus, this Jesus that you crucified, he has been lifted on high as, as Lord, equal with God, as Messiah. He is all authority and all power. And I think what he would say to us as the church is, hey, listen, this Jesus that you want sometimes just to function as your therapist or your lifeguard, or you think it's just your traffic cop or just a wise sage, no, he he is Lord and Messiah. He is king. He is all power, all authority, not just over, over one nation or over part of the world, but all of creation now rests under his authority and his power. He is king of kings, Lord of lords, king of the universe. This is Jesus Lord and Messiah. Now, here's the reality. I know that as Americans, we don't necessarily respond very much to titles. You know, our respect is not drummed up by a title. I mean, you you can just kind of look at the way we treat our presidents, right? You can kind of see this is true. Uh, We don't care who's sitting in the Oval Office. We don't care about that they're called president. What we wanna know is how are they going to leverage the authority and power as president? What are they gonna do with it? What are they gonna do with that authority and power? And this is where King Jesus stands apart from any other leader, ruler, authority in the history of the world. This is what you've gotta know. You wanna know what King Jesus does with his authority, with his power. You read Philippians chapter two, it becomes very clear. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, listen, this Jesus being equal with God did not consider that to be something he should hold on to for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself of all of that, and he humbled himself to the point of a servant, and he walked a lowly life on earth in the midst of all the pain and brokenness, never once trying to get everybody to bend their knee to him. In fact, silencing the evil spirits who tried to proclaim that's who he was, he instead walked a humble life and suffered an agonizing death. He walked amidst our brokenness and he overcame our brokenness by enduring our brokenness on a cross. Do you want to know what King Jesus does with his authority and his power? He leverages all of it for your sake. This is what he does. There's no one like him. There's no one like Jesus. Man, he deserves so much more than just our Sunday mornings. He deserves so much more than uh, just a little bit of our life, a little bit of our time. uh, He he deserves so much more. There is no one like King Jesus who has leveraged all that he has for your sake. You know, the reality is, is that there is brokenness in the human race. There is suffering in the human race. There is sin in the human race that separates us from our true identity as children, creations, image bearers of God Almighty. And Jesus said, hey, I'll bridge that gap. I will let go of my authority and power so that all of God's children can come home. And so this is why all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. You know, there's a reason that these false narratives about Jesus feel so appealing to us. There's a reason. It's because so many of us, we long for wisdom from someone wiser than us to teach us, right? And this is true about King Jesus. He has all the wisdom you could ever long for but he's so much more than just a sage. You know, so many of us, anytime we come face to face with our own hopelessness, we long for a savior. We long for someone to save us. And that's why we buy into the lifeguard, Jesus, but he's so much more than a lifeguard. King Jesus is a savior and he longs to save you. He has saved many of you and he will continue to save many of you, but he's so much more than a lifeguard that just sits on the edge of the pool. You know, all of us have come face to face with our own wounds, our own hurts and brokenness, anxieties. And in that moment, we long for therapists. And here's the thing about King Jesus is he is an amazing listening ear and he is the great healer. But as our therapist, we do not, he does not bend his values to ours, but we come and we understand that our healing is found when we let his values begin to shape the entirety of our lives. This is who King Jesus is. King Jesus is so much more. He's so much more. You know, some of you are sitting there going, man, as you keep talking about King Jesus, all power, all authority, it sounds an awful lot like traffic cop Jesus that I grew up with, but let me just tell you, King Jesus is not at all like traffic cop Jesus. King Jesus is not the traffic cop who writes you the ticket. Instead, King Jesus is the judge who sits there when he's given your ticket. He says, hey, I'll come down off my stand and I will pay the penalty that is required by this ticket. Let me endure it. You see, our perception of the traffic cop is that they are trying to gain at our expense to meet their quota or whatever you want to say. But when we understand about King Jesus, he is not trying to gain at your expense. He longs for you to gain at his expense. He's paid every price, every debt so that you can know how much you are loved by the God of the universe. This is what King Jesus does with all of his power and all of his authority. He leverages it for your sake for your sake. You know, Peter finishes preaching and these people are cut to the heart and they say, well, what do we do, Peter? he says, it's really simple, you repent. You repent. Repent is this word that means you change your mind. You stop functioning under the false narrative and you turn entirely to the truth of Jesus as king of all the earth. And you say, okay, Jesus, everything I have is not yours. Everything I have is yours. When we live under these false narratives, those things don't make sense. It doesn't make sense to surrender everything to the lifeguard who stays out of your business, but when you understand that he is king, everything now becomes his. I submit, when I I, I accept him as savior, it's not, Lord, I want you as savior, but let me hang on to what I do with my money. Let me hang on to what I do with my sexuality. Let me hang on to what I do with my time, or my calling, or my career, or my purpose, or my kids, or my marriage. No, it's Jesus, you're king. Everything since you saved me is laid at your feet. You have access to all of it because I trust that you're good and you've leveraged everything for the sake of the world to the glory of God. We submit everything to King Jesus and we trust him because we know he's good, he has shown us. And Peter says, repent, repent. Stop functioning under the false and limited narratives of who Jesus is. And the invitation for us this morning is the same. The invitation is to repent. He's inviting us, guys, will we change our minds on the identity of Jesus? Will we stop putting him on the shelf and compartmentalizing him into the the place in our life where we think we need him, and instead will we put him on the throne and put everything underneath him? Will we repent as a church? Because I promise you, we will not be able to move forward in our identity as the church until we fully grasp and understand the bigness of the identity of King Jesus. This is the invitation. I I wanna be the first, you know, I'll just tell you, like as I've been working on this, I felt like Jesus is going, Aaron, you gotta repent. And I wanna repent. I wanna repent and confess to you that sometimes I fall prey of letting Jesus, my savior, kinda just being a method or a way for me to gain notoriety for myself. That I will try to use Jesus to make a name for me to get well-known when I care too much about what you think about me. I care too much about what people that listen to our podcast think of me. I care too much about my name being made great. I'll repent. I repent. This is not about me. This is about King Jesus. And the invitation is for us all to repent and put him on the throne. And so this morning, we're gonna go to communion here in a minute. And I've got kind of a discussion question for you to talk about, a way for us to pray. I just wanna encourage you whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you've never, never given your life to Jesus, this morning, the invitation is to repent, change your mind, give your life wholeheartedly to the good, gracious, loving, saving King Jesus. Let me pray. God, we love you. Jesus, I love you. You're so good. so good. Lord, forgive me for when I have maligned your name, for when I have tried to use your name to my advantage. Forgive me. I repent, Lord. Lord, will you fill us with your Spirit, cut us to the heart that we may repent, we may be a repentant people, that Jesus, we would stop treating you as though you were something on the periphery of our lives, and instead we will wholeheartedly just welcome you to sit on the throne. As we commune with you now, as we come to your body and your blood, Would you guide us through your spirit and would you gently show us where we have lived under a false narrative? And would you lead us by your spirit to repent, to put you on the throne? Come, Lord, come. Move in our midst as we invite you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen.